listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. Roosevelt's administration created a National Labor Board to sort out disputes under the NIRA, but it proved inadequate to deal with the numerous employer challenges. Also, the employers turned to the courts to challenge the board's right to oversee union representation elections. This forced Roosevelt to issue an executive order, but the board remained weak and ineffectual. In April 1934, an AFL union struck at electric auto light over union recognition and low wages. No more than half the plant's workers stopped working, allowing the company to continue operations with its loyal employees and some replacement workers. In sympathy, employees at two neighboring factories, the Logan Gear Company and the Bingham Stamping Company, had joined the strike, but the real boost along the picket line came from the Lucas County Unemployment League, a counterpart to the CPUSA's Unemployment Councils. The Lucas League was affiliated with the Marxist-leaning American Workers' Party, also known as the AWP, led by A.J. Must, a Christian pacifist minister who had founded the Unemployed League in Seattle in 1931. The AWP philosophy was that the unemployed and employed were both in a struggle over labor. Although the League started out as a self-help group focused on survival tactics for the out-of-work, as the hardships of the Depression deepened, their efforts included rent strikes, bread marches, demonstration seeking jobs or relief. The unemployed leagues unemployed fought hard for workers on strike. This had the benefit of giving labor a veritable army of ready protesters, but also denied employers a source of replacement workers. Electric Autolite obtained an injunction to restrict picketing, but with the help of the unemployed league, the strike was able to put as many as six thousand protesters before the plant's gates, rendering impossible any attempt to enforce the court order, especially since many local police were sympathetic to the strikers. Autolite hired special deputies, one of which beat an elderly man to the ground. The strikers and their unemployed allies, seeing this, pulled a wagon full of bricks to the front of the factory. The deputies fled into the factory. The men threw bricks breaking windows and causing other damage. Three times they engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the deputies. Hundreds of Ohio National Guardsmen were rushed in. They were able to free the scabs but were surrounded using bayonets to escape failed, so they fired on the protesters, killing two. Autolite decided that after over two days of carnage to close the factory, 
When it eventually reopened, they agreed to recognize the AFL local as the employee's collective bargaining agent, gave a slight wage hike, and rehired most of the strikers. As with most unions, after the passage into law of the NIRA Section 7A, the ranks of the International Longshoremen Association had grown substantially, and this alarmed the local industrial association created by businessmen in the 1920s to rid the town of labor radicals. The workers were tired of the employer's use of the shape-up, the early morning hire call in which foremen picked that day's workers, a method prone to bribery and corruption. The system fostered nasty competition among individual longshoremen and inhibited their willingness to complain for fear of falling out of favor with those who ruled the daily selections. It also denied dockhands a steady employment and reliable wages. If not for a group of rank-and-file members agreeing with Harry Bridges, the ILA might have not fought the so long-standing institution of the shape-up but Bridges insisted on a hiring hall ran by the union. ILA members, longshoremen went out from Seattle to San Diego when ship and warehouse owners in San Francisco attempted to use scabs. The local Teamsters refused to haul any goods to and from the docks. Several thousand crewmen from cargo ships voluntarily went idle. San Francisco's Industrial Association, working with local police, tried to reopen the docks using guarded convoys of trucks. Resulting in a day-long battle, police fired tear gas and drenched strikers with fire hoses. The strikers responded with bricks, stones, and railroad spikes, six inch long and weighing about a pound and a half. What a weapon! <laughs> but the police had a new weapon too vomiting gas, really a new form of tear gas that also caused those exposed to it to also vomit. The National Guard was called in. The Teamsters' sympathy strike went citywide and other unions joined the strike. 125,000 strikers closed the city down. When Attorney General Cummings said he thought Labor Secretary Perkins was not taking the situation seriously enough, she replied, Mr. Cummings, I think I do see it seriously. I see the military moving in there from the Presidio. It will create the most terrible resentment, and all the trade unions who are not out now will go out. They'll gather in crowds to hoot and jeer at the soldiers, driving a bakery wagon through the streets. You know what will happen. The soldiers will fire, somebody will get hurt, the mob will attack, and a lot of people will drop in the streets. I call that very serious. Roosevelt, when appraised of the situation, concurred with the need for restraint. The San Francisco general strike collapsed after four days, and the ILA and the employers agreed to arbitration. In late spring and summer of 1934, in Minneapolis, where a daring Teamster local took on unified employers, a powerful business association, vigilantes, and the police. Local 574's demands were not radical, just that employers abide by the NIRA Section 7A's collective bargaining guarantee and 
honor worker seniority in hiring and layoffs. A creation of an arbitration board and insisted that there be no discrimination against union members. But employers stated in newspaper ads that the real issue involved in this strike is the closed union shop, complete unionization of all truck drivers in Minneapolis. A great many of our employees do not now belong to 574 and have expressed themselves as being unwilling to join. It is our intention to protect these employees in their right to exercise freedom of choice as provided in Section 7A of the National Industrial Recovery Act. Here was one key weakness of Section 7A. It was open to interpretation by employers fearful of the closed shop. Formed in 1908, the Citizens Alliance, a national employers association, took aim at the Teamsters. It became prominent in the 1917 and 1918 trolley car strike and held considerable sway ever since. Led by George Dayton, industrialist O.P. Briggs, and A.W. Burt Strong, the Citizens Alliance was one of constitutional opposition to the un-American closed shop mixed with warmed-over social Darwinist rhetoric about each man being allowed to make his own way free of the restricting influence of workers' organizations. The Alliance took the view that the Teamsters were trying to control commerce in and out of Minneapolis's downtown, and this meant war. The strike started on May 12th, and the union's best strategy was to grant local unemployed workers union membership. Their addition to the strikers' ranks greatly increased, and thus their ability to put troops on the street. The Teamsters organized the strike as none had ever been before. They had patrol cars, a daily strike newspaper, loudspeakers, a commissary, medical and ambulance services for their wounded. The leaders regularly submitted strike decisions for members' consideration, a feature of local 574's makeup that would prove vital when its leaders disappeared into the custody of raiding police. Manning watched stations on roads leading into town and using phones to make strike headquarters aware the Teamsters were able to stop all unwanted truck traffic in and out of the city using the Flying Squadron, a mode of rapid response. Strikers could flock to spots where employers were attempting to move goods. They also would send legions of strikers to a specific area in staggered waves to keep the police unaware of the strength of the strikers. Sympathy stoppages were carried out by 25,000 workers throughout the city. The Teamsters won the backing of the state's farmers by permitting them to enter the city and deliver produce. They also closed down many gas stations. Unable to restock perishable goods, restaurants and grocery stores were shuttered. Bakeries closed, unable to deliver their breads. When taxi drivers joined the strike and stopped picking up fares, hotels had to figure out how to get stranded guests to train depots. The first few days of the strike was peaceful, but an Alliance member pretended to be sympathetic to the strike and on a false pretext to have male and female pickets 
moved into a police ambush in an alley behind the Minneapolis Tribune building. Their vehicles blocked in by police cars, the unarmed strikers were easy prey for the cops and vigilantes, who beat them with fists and nightsticks. The strikers wanted revenge, but the leadership convinced them that it was a trap and to wait. On May 21st, the strikers strategically isolated the deputies from their police allies in the market. Using baseball bats and other weapons, the strikers chased the alliance members into nooks and crannies of the old produce stalls and warehouse buildings, beating them mercilessly even after many threw down their clubs and made signs of surrender. The next day, despite the police having assigned officers to remain with the Alliance deputies to protect them and to keep them from retreating, the strikers again overwhelmed the vigilantes, not only beating them soundly, but chasing many out of the market area entirely. A truck carrying 25 deputies that had the bad timing to enter the district at the height of the fight was at once surrounded by strikers who pulled the surprised volunteers from the truck and whacked them with baseball bats and homemade saps. Police who tried to intervene were themselves rooted. One cop was seen hiding under a car as strikers poked at him with their clubs. The deputy's extensive casualties included the death of C. Arthur Lyman, counsel for the Alliance, and Deputy Peter Erath. The threat of militia being called in and exhaustion on both sides from the fighting helped create a break in the strike. On May 25th, a concord was reached between Local 547 and the employers for recognition of the Teamsters and no blacklisting of men who had been active as strikers. But after a few weeks of peace, the agreement fell apart. The employers insisted the deal would exclude inside workers, those Teamsters who worked as warehousemen and did not drive trucks. The union refused to agree, and on July 17th, the strike was back on. On July 20th, police escorted a convoy of produce trucks as if attempting to make deliveries, when, as anticipated, the lead vehicle was blocked by a truck carrying union pickets. Police armed with shotguns suddenly emerged as if from everywhere. Strikers in the truck, as well as pickets on the street, had no chance as the police guns blazed Within moments, 70 people were wounded, too mortally. The cops had gone berserk, Farrell Dubb said. They were shooting in all directions, hitting most of their victims in the back as they tried to escape. Henry Ness, one of the strikers mowed down, clung to life for three days in a local hospital as his family and Teamsters brethren stood vigil. Tell the boys not to fail me now, he admonished those keeping watch at his bedside. The city came to a standstill the day of his funeral as tens of thousands of Union rank and file from the area heard Ness eulogized as a hero. Governor Olson was afraid of further carnage and said, if it is necessary to assume military control, I will make the city of Minneapolis as quiet as a Sunday school, threatening martial law. Demonstrators, furious about the police shooting, were clamoring for the heads of Mayor A.G. Bainbridge and Chief of Police Mike Johannes when strikers vowed to defy any martial law edict. 
Olsen on August 1st ordered a surprise 4 a.m. raid on Teamsters headquarters, taking dozens of people into custody, including most of the strike leadership, and imprisoning them in a stockade at the state fairgrounds in St. Paul. Olsen then does several things to calm the Union. He releases those Teamsters held at the fairgrounds and to use their headquarters. At the same time, he ordered a raid on the Citizens Alliance headquarters. After consulting with President Roosevelt, Olson also softened the Alliance's influence by bringing pressure on two leading local financial institutions, First Bank and Northwest Banco. Both helped finance the local Alliance chapter and both were in debt to the federal government on account of reconstruction finance loans. The Alliance lost the idea of being a citadel of open shop and the Teamsters winning the representation of warehousemen marked an expansion of the Union. The 1930s brought new activity in labor which brought up new questions labor needed to deal with. The Communist Party had reached out to organizing black workers much as it had the unemployed. Perceiving African Americans as a nation within a nation, the most abused sufferers of class prejudice, who, when liberated, would help spur society's transformation. They also took on several high-profile lynching cases, including, most famously, the defense of the Scottsboro Boys, a group of young black men wrongly accused of raping two white women aboard a freight train in Alabama in 1931. Pullman porters were among the best-paid black workers in America, but Working conditions were rigorous. Some worked as many as 81 to 100 hours per week. No pay for overnight off-train layovers, during which they had to pay for meals and lodging. Employees who became disgruntled or attempted unionization were banned from service. When 500 porters gathered in 1925 to found the Brotherhood, they elected a. Philip Randolph, a socialist writer, editor, and labor organizer, as their leader precisely because he was not a porter and the company could not discipline him, fire him, nor find his car untidy. Poland formed a company union even though the Railway Act of 1926 theoretically prohibited such company-rigged employee organizations. For almost a dozen years, the porters waged two battles to eliminate the company union and win recognition from the AFL. In 1935, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters won a federally mediated election over the company union and in 1937 struck a collective bargaining agreement, a major achievement as New Deal labor reforms excluded many jobs in which blacks were prominent, such as farm work and domestic labor. The NRA was called the Negro Removal Act by many black newspapers. Having come reluctantly to at least a partial accommodations on race, the FL was soon confronted with whether Federation workers would be best served by being organized in trade unions are along industrial lines. In 1934, at a San Francisco gathering, vows were made to take steps toward industrial organizing. A year later, with a lack of follow-up, Lewis accused the leadership of reneging. 
At the Atlanta City Convention, Lewis addressed the members about unionizing by industry. A vote was held, and those wanting to remain a craft-organized union won by a large margin. As Lewis's forces tried to bring the issue to debate, William L. Hutchison of the Carpenters Union moved to suppress further discussion. Lewis challenged the parliamentary maneuver Hutchison called Lewis a bastard. Lewis jumped over a row of chairs and punched Hutchison in the side of the head, knocking him against a table. The next day, those in favor of organizing along industrial lines caucused and established a committee for industrial organization. Soon after, on November 23, 1935, Lewis resigned his office as AFL vice president. In January 1936, the CIO made one last attempt to get the AFL to charter industrial unions. The AFL demanded that the CIO, still formerly a committee of the AFL, disband at once. Lewis told the members of the AFL Executive Council that he would see them wearing asbestos suits in hell before he would surrender his breakaway group. The matter sat for several months until late summer 1936 when the AFL suspended the 10 unions that had affiliated with the CIO. In March 1937, they were formally expelled. This split even strengthened the idea of industrial unionism and many non-unionized workers flooded into the CIO's podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <laughs>